there are times where life just doesn't work out the way it should. You do a certain thing and you're used to a certain result. And then we do these things, we make these plans, we move forward with whatever it is, and, and it doesn't result in the way that we think it should. And sometimes that means that it results worse than we think it should. And, and sometimes it means that it results better than we think it should. I was reminded by somebody just the other day, we were talking about, about life as a parent. And this person said they, they feel like an utter failure. And then they look at their kids and their kids aren't utter failures. And so then they don't know how their kids ended up being not utter failures when they see what they're really like as a parent, right? The, the things that they expected to be handed down in the way they would expect it to happen aren't happening. Their kids are turning out better than they had expected. Sometimes, though, it goes the other way. We do certain things and we feel like a good result is going to come. And instead of the good result coming, we end up in a place where things worked out much worse than we would have expected. Why? Partly because... God is sovereign, not me. And if there's any particular takeaway from this morning's topic about the character of God, it's that he is the one moving pieces, not us, which is a blessing to us because then we could just trust him. There's your main point. Because God is sovereign, we can trust him. We're going to take a look at several passages today. If you, uh, just by way of reminder, if you, somewhere on here, if you have your bulletin, there's a QR code on the sermon notes page. You can follow that with any smartphone and find the verses that are the passages that we have set for this morning. Uh, that'll be more than just what's on here. There's additional ones to that. But we are going to look at God's sovereignty. And we're going to start by looking uh, at two particular passages, one that we've looked at before, and we're going to reference it and just state that it is a reality, and then the, we're going to come to a passage out of Daniel. So first we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And Paul writes this, In him we have obtained an inheritance through Christ, right? Having been predestined, chosen beforehand, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And God is actively, in this verse, what it's saying, God is actively working all things after the counsel of his will. Actively working every single event, that would be all things, after the counsel or understanding of his will. So God is taking all of the events of the world and fashioning them after the purpose of his will. Now that is incredibly encouraging most of the time. And then every once in a while, there are things that go on in our life that we feel like we can't understand. And then we say, but God is sovereign, but I don't understand why he would have allowed this to happen. And so then we either question his sovereignty or we don't rest in him the way we should. Honestly, that's the error of putting ourselves back at the centerpiece of this equation. Because since we don't understand it, then we question him instead of just knowing that he is the one who is sovereign and knows better. We should understand that as parents. 
We sometimes tell our kids things that they just don't understand. And we understand that they don't understand, and we can't really explain it. It has to be this way. Why? Because it has to be. Because running out on the street in front of a car is a bad idea, and they just don't understand it. So then you, instead of trying to help them understand it, we just put them in the backyard and tell them you can't play in the front yard sort of thing. Now we're going to come back to Daniel. Daniel is a fascinating book. And if you've ever had a chance to read it, the, the basic story of the book of Daniel just through chapter 4 goes like this. Uh, the Israelites are taken over by the Babylonians because they refuse, absolutely refuse to follow God. And they get taken over by the Babylonians and their best of the best become slaves to the king. And they're moved to Babylon. Daniel's one of these people. And Daniel's put in this place of advisor. And then Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And this dream is weird. And he says, anybody who can interpret this dream for me must also be able to tell me what the dream is. Nobody can do that. And Daniel says, my God can do that. So Daniel spends time praying, asking God to make this clear to him. God reveals the dream to him. He brings it to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, if you can tell me the dream and then tell me what it means, I'm going to trust what you say. And then he says, your God, because Daniel says it wasn't me, it was God. He says, your God is amazing and I will worship him. That's chapter 2. Here's what happens. We're going to read chapter, this part out of chapter 2. So all of this happens. Daniel Daniel reveals the dream to the king. And then in verses 20 to, 20, 20 to 22, it says, Daniel answered and says, uh, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what it is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. All this focus on God, his ability to know, his ability to not just know, but to set up kings, to take them down when they don't serve his purpose. We see that again in Revelation when, when Jesus tells the churches that he will take away their lampstand if they choose to not follow him. That doesn't mean their salvation. It means their influence, their position. God sets up kings. He takes them down when they no longer suit his purpose. He raises nations. He brings them down. What does that mean for America in this moment? I don't know. I'm not a prophet. What could it mean? It could mean that God has raised up America to do a certain thing for a certain time, and we will or have reached the end of that time, and he will bring us down. Why? Not because he doesn't care, but because he is sovereign and working out his plan. That's a side note. It's not the point of the message, and I have no idea if that's about to happen. I'm not a prophet. I'm not uh, an economist. An economist? Yeah, that's the word. It's like that, that word was not coming off my mouth right. I'm not a politician. I can't see these trends and know these things. I have no information or knowledge except that God could do that. It's in his purview. But so, Nebuchadnezzar asks for the dream. It's told to him. It's explained to him. And he says that I will trust God. And then he builds an idol to himself. And he says, worship the idol or die, which does not sound an awful lot like I'm worshiping God and no one else. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, we won't. We don't hear anything about Daniel in this story. That is not to say that Daniel was worshiping the idol. It's just not about him in that moment. And he writes about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they say, we will not do this. The king brings them in and says, hey, guys, I like you. I'm going to give you one more chance. Just do this so I don't have to kill you. And they say, no. So he throws them in the fiery furnace, and they don't die. And they're brought out, and then King Nebuchadnezzar again sees that the God of Israel has power and that he doesn't have. And so he goes on a rant about how great he is and how wonderful his kingdom is. So he's given a dream. And the dream essentially says this. Worship God Understand that he is sovereign and in control or he will prove it to you. Do you know what he says to that dream? Psh, I can do my own thing. I am king of Babylon. And so God makes him insane. He runs around on all four, on hands and knees like an animal, eating grass, eating whatever he can find out in the wilderness for years. And then God restores him. So we get to uh, Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. That's a really interesting way to write this. You've got Nebuchadnezzar writing in the present, but speaking about the past. And saying what's, what's going to happen. So he's talking presently right here. And then he's going to say how it all transpired. Anyway. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion, his kingdom, his power, his rule is an everlasting dominion. Right? He's comparing himself to God. Mine is this kingdom that God took away by making me lose my mind. But his is an everlasting kingdom that can't be taken away. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. The inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Eight billion people. Just imagine that. Eight billion people compared to God are of nothing in power. That's a lot of people. I don't know if the, the word billion means as much to us as it should. If we were to count seconds, right? One, two, three, that's all the further I can count. But if we were to count seconds, it would take us roughly 10 days to reach a million. Do you know how long it would take to reach a billion counting every second of every day? 32 years. So this number of people, 8 billion people that are of no power compared to God altogether, not just individually, but altogether, united, they are of no power compared to God would take us roughly 230 years to count every second of every day to reach that number of people. And they are of no account compared to God's power. That is a sovereign God, a powerful God. All the inhabitants of the earth are, of, are accounted to you as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven. So not only among people, but among all the angels. So there's no power that compares to God if you put all the people together and if you add all the angels to that. 
none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is similar to the Galatians 6 passage that says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. God can be made fun of. People can say to God, what are you doing? They just have no basis for it. You can't fool God. You can't have any basis for questioning him. Why? Because he is the sovereign king, right? It's his dominion that lasts forever, not mine, not yours. So what does it mean to be sovereign? Maybe we need to step back and ask that question to understand it rightly. To be sovereign is to be in control. Control of what? Of whatever is yours, Right? A king is sovereign over his nation. He's not sovereign over someone else's nation. He's sovereign over his nation. That's where his control lies. Psalm 100 verse 3 says that we are God's people, the sheep of his pasture. Whose are we? We, being all people, are his in that sense. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, his control, his, his right control over things that are his, it's all of us. Not just us as individuals, not all of us as individuals, but all of us as whatever groups we're in as well, right? Bethel Baptist Church is a group of people who follow Jesus. A group of people who want to know him and know him more. Not only is he sovereign over all the individuals within that realm of people, he's sovereign over that whole group of people. Because we are his. We are the sheep of his pasture. And that should cause us to trust him. Now, one of the problems that we have in talking about God's sovereignty is that many of our minds shift gears or skip steps and we get to, we get to uh, an end point that is not the main point. And we get to a, the end point that says, well, how does that work out in life? I, I want to know how that, how that happens in life, which is where we get confused because we are not smart enough to understand it. And not saying that we're not smart, not saying that God can't reveal things to us or hasn't revealed things to us, but he has not chosen to reveal to us all the details of all of life and the whys of why he does things. But we get to a spot where we, we bypass all of, the rest, all of the rest of it and we say, I want to know why it happens this way. And from my perspective, God's sovereignty should look like this, but it's not looking like this and we get hung up in the practical element of it. Now, that's a really important topic. How does God's sovereignty play out in our lives? It's an incredibly important topic, but it's not so much a topic where it should be me telling you what to think, but it should be us coming together, having looked at scriptures to say, what do we understand from scripture and how does it play out in a discussion position instead of a unilateral communication position? So I'd love to have that conversation with you if you're interested in having that. I would love to put you in a group of people to have that conversation. But today's message is not really about how does God's sovereignty play out. We want to look at that it is. That God's character is sovereign, not how God's sovereignty interacts with my life. 
Because if we're not careful, what we do is we forget the more important character of God and we spend our time focusing on us and how we interact with God's sovereignty, putting us at the center of the conversation. We are not the center of the conversation. God is. The character of God is. So, let's step back from the how does it interact with our life and let's just look at what it means for God to be sovereign and the implications then just of that to our life. We've already stated that God is sovereign. We've already stated that that in his sovereignty, he is, if we go back to the Ephesians passage, he is actively working and working things after the counsel of his will. This isn't a passive sort of thing. This is an active sort of thing. It's a present tense verb. He is right now doing it. And now that right now is past, he is right now doing it. And now that right now is past, right? It just continues on. In every moment that is present, God is working out all things after the counsel of his will. We see in Nebuchadnezzar that he raises kings, he brings them down. I mean, the most powerful entities on earth are kings who have sovereign unilateral decision-making power, and he raises them at his will and drops them at his will. Genesis chapter 50 becomes sort of our final picture of this. If you know the story of Genesis, it's, it's huge, right? It goes all over the place. But there's one common thread through the last third of this book of a character named Joseph. And Joseph has an amazing story filled with, I would like to say ups and downs, but it's really filled with downs and downs and downs and downs and a great big up. That's what his story is filled with. So, so Joseph, long story short, is not perfect. And in fact, if we were to lay out the things that he did, I wouldn't say that he deserved what he got. But he was really arrogant at the start of the story. He really was. He wanted to make sure his brothers all knew. Guys, hey, just so you know, I'm the one that you're all going to bow down to. Even if that's the story, the message of the dream, which it was, did he have to run out and tell his brothers that? Then the next one comes and his dad bows down to him. And so he goes to his dad and he says, hey, you're going to bow down to me as well. (sighs) So they throw him in a pit so that he can die. And they decide to sell him so they can make a profit. Then he gets to a house, he does well, and gets thrown in jail because of a lie. He then is in jail, and he starts to do well, and he meets somebody who can help him get out. So he says, hey, when you get out, remember me, and the guy promptly forgets him. So he rots in jail for years, finally gets out, meets the Pharaoh, interprets a dream, helps everything build the way that it should. Then he sees his brothers by happenstance and saves them after teaching them a lesson. And then his dad dies. And his brothers come to him and they say, Hey, dad wanted you to take care of us after he was gone. Why? Because we all know the wrath of a brother who's been holding on to the ability to get back at his siblings 
when no one's watching. Okay, maybe I'm the only one who was like that. But I was like that growing up. They come to him and they say that, and Daniel says this, Do not fear, for I am not in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about the saving of many people. What does that mean? As we talk about God's sovereignty, what does this verse have anything to do with it? When you are in a verse, a passage, or a, a particular book, uh, being a particular book being the book of Matthew or the letter to the Ephesians or whatever it is, and you see a word that's used by an author and then immediately used again, what you should start with in your understanding of Scripture is that that word is meant the same in both ways. Right? They're using the same word to put a parallel between these two or to connect them together. So here, let's not even get to the second half of this verse, but let's look at the first half of the verse. You meant it for evil. What did they mean for evil? They meant taking him, stripping him of his clothes, throwing him in a well, trying to profit off his demise. They meant that, planned it, intended it to do evil against him. And to every extent that they planned this, it says that God meant it for good. This word in, in Hebrew is hasaba. Not that it's that important. Well, it is because it's scripture, but I think you know what I mean. Hasaba is the idea of initiating something. Not the idea of reacting to it, but initiating something. So God, he, Joseph tells his brothers, you initiated this for my demise, for evil. God initiated it for good. How does that work? Was it sinful for them to throw him in a well and try to kill him and then sell him as a slave so they never had to see him again? Yes, it was. Incredibly. And to every extent that they meant that for evil, God initiated and intended it for good, even in their sin. So somehow, I don't know exactly how, but somehow God uses even sinful actions to bring about his sovereign will. I cannot explain that. Because in my mind, there's got to be a different way. But God is even smarter than I am. God is even smarter than all of us together. And even in all of that intelligence, in all of that effort, he knows what he's doing, even if we don't. Even if we can't understand it, he knows what he's doing. He initiated this for good, even though they initiated it for evil. Somehow in his sovereign will, that he used sinful actions to bring about a good end. So what does this all mean? What does God's sovereignty matter to our lives? We've already said that it allows us to trust him. 
this Genesis passage particularly says that we can trust God when life is hard. Not even hard, unfair. Not just unfair, brutal. We can still trust him because he's working in that, at least potentially, for your good. Now, I say at least potentially because we can't just say because it happened in Joseph's life, it happens in our life as well, except that we can. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is probably a verse most of us know. And it says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So back to the Genesis passage, that worked. It was initiated. It meant good for the people through Joseph, even though things were bad. And we can't directly apply that to us, except that this verse tells us for all of us whose hope, faith, and trust is in Jesus, it does work that way. Does that mean we still understand it? No, we don't magically understand it just because we know it. But it's true, nevertheless. We can trust him when times are hard. We can trust him when we don't understand the events going on in life, whatever they are. Because he is at work for his glory and the betterment of his people. We can all think of events that have gone on in our personal lives or in the lives of people around us that we don't like. They were not fun. They were not enjoyable. Maybe, looking back at them, we can see how God was working in their lives through those events, but maybe we can't. This verse does not say that when we come out the other side of it, we will know why God did the things he did. doesn't say that at all. Unless you talk about the other side being heaven. Perhaps when we reach the side of life that is heaven after death, we'll understand it. But there's no guarantee out of this verse or any other verse that we'll understand it even when we get out of it on earth. Again, when we say we must understand it, we aren't focusing on God's character of sovereignty. We're focusing on our, our centrality. And we are not central. None of us, not even all of us. We can trust God when times are hard. We can trust him when, when things are going on that we don't understand, whether it's the story of Joseph, whether it's the story of you or me or Bethel or Marquette. There are events that happen. Uh, back in the town that we just left, Algona, there was a police officer shot and killed on Wednesday night. It's a town of 5,000 people. This doesn't happen in towns of 5,000 people. We're not there, but we see how it's affecting people. Is God at work in that? Yes. How? I don't know. But this tells me that I can know that he is. And I can rest in the fact that I know that he is. And the onus can be taken off of me to explain a thing because I can trust that he is in control, even if I don't understand it. God is, in, God is sovereign over salvation, so we can trust him. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God is sovereign in salvation. He chose us when? Before the foundation of the world. Raise your hand if you were alive at the foundation of the world. My son raised his hand. And he would probably try to find a technicality in that, but you're wrong, son. We weren't. So if God chose us before the foundation of the world and none of us were alive at the foundation of the world, he chose us before we could do what? Choose him. Just simply put, he also chose us before there was sin. Right? If he chose us before the foundation of the world and sin happened after the world was founded, because that's when Adam and Eve were here, then he chose us to adopt us out of death and into life before any person had ever sinned. But that's a different conversation. Again, that conversation about how does it work out, we can have some fascinating conversations about that. But right now, it's to know that he did. And that it's his ability to do that. Salvation becomes a really easy topic to talk about in terms of God's sovereignty. And a really, really hard topic to talk about in terms of God's sovereignty. Because in our minds, it should be easy. God should just make everyone a believer. If he's sovereign over this, he should just do it. Why doesn't he? Now we're going to flip back to Romans chapter 9. And Romans 9 verses 14 to 18 says this. Uh, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion about, upon whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Which sounds like a really cool thing. Except the way he did that was to destroy Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea so that all the nations around him would know God is for real. So he raised Pharaoh up, he says, for the purpose of destroying your army so that people could know who I am. That sounds mean. Doesn't it? Honestly, from a human perspective, that sounds mean. So let's continue. He has mercy upon whom he has mercy, or whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will then say to me, somebody out there will have the idea to say to me, me being Paul in this case, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? So if God is sovereign over salvation, he's sovereign on showing compassion, sovereign on hardening, hardening people, why does he still find fault in us? Hmm? Who can resist his will if he's sovereign? Hmm? Do you know what the inspired divine answer to that is? Don't talk back to God. Okay, that's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close. But who are you, O oh man, to talk back or answer back to God? Remember Job answering back to God? And then God showed up and Job was like, oh, I'm sorry. That's the picture. 
Who are you to talk back to God? If this is what he chooses to do, who are you to tell him he can't? How does it work? I don't know. Does God violate people in this case? No. Is God sinful in condemning people to death? No. How does it work? I don't know. But I do know that it does. I think we can come to pretty close approximations of how this works. And it's like I said before, better a discussion thing than a, than a directive thing. Ephesians 1.11 moves us past that. And again, God is actively working to, to pull all this back together. God is actively working to work out all things after the counsel of his will. Everything in your life, in this moment, yesterday, and today, and tomorrow, is being worked out by God, Romans 8.28, for your benefit if you trust him, Ephesians 1.11, after the counsel of his will. He is doing this. We can trust him because we don't have to be the decision makers. We're not the ones causing things to happen. We do our best because that's what he's called us to, but we are not the ones that it all hinges on to make work. That is God and his doing because who is God? God is sovereign. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again this morning thanking you for your Sovereignty, thanking you for your, your will, your work, your power, your might, your understanding. God, we, we have things in life that, we, that are beyond our ability to understand. And so in those things, Father, we pray that you just give us the trust that we need to trust you. We have things in life, Father, that, that we see go on around us. And we ask that you just allow us to understand that you are sovereign and we can trust you. We know the truth. And yet, Father, we struggle because I, at least, am weak. Grant us the understanding of you through your spirit. Grant us the opportunity to worship you more truly, more fully. Grow us and teach us and make us like your son. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.